We really are a long way from where we were. You may know that in 2003, the AMA brought together a panel of experts and issued a consensus statement on physician well-being and said this was a big problem and that physician mental health needed to be prioritized and it went nowhere. But we are at a different point in time and this is about seize the moment. This is the Visible Voices podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Risa Lewis. Before we get started, here's a word from the podcast creator of In the Right Direction. I'm Deb Elbaum, leadership and executive coach and host of the podcast In the Right Direction. We explore strategies to help you think and communicate clearly and confidently so that you feel engaged and purposeful, both at work and in life. Hi, audience. Thanks so much for joining me in today's episode. We are going to be speaking about healthcare professional, mental health, suicide prevention, burnout, depression, and all sorts of things in the healthcare professional world. I'm going to start framing the episode by reading you a little blurb from the Dr. Lorna Breen Heroes Foundation website. Healthcare professionals have long experienced high levels of stress and burnout, and COVID-19 has only exacerbated the problem. While helping their patients fight for their lives, many healthcare professionals are coping with their own trauma of losing patients and colleagues and fear for their own health and safety. So with that as a start, you're going to hear a lot about stigma, the stigma surrounding mental health, talking about mental health, seeking help for mental health. My two guests are Dr. Carol Bernstein and attorney Corey Feist. Carol is a psychiatrist. She's a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences and obstetrics and gynecology and women's health at the Montefiore Medical Center and the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx. She's also the past president of the American Psychiatric Association. Attorney Corey Feist is a healthcare executive. He's the co-founder of the Dr. Lorna Breen Heroes Foundation. He's the brother-in-law of Dr. Lorna Breen, and he currently serves as the chief executive officer of the University of Virginia Physicians Group. Now, the topic is serious, and it can be triggering for some of you. If at any point you want to take a break, take a pause, turn off the episode, please do so. And now... Let's get to the conversation. When we start, Carol is talking about physician suicides in New York City and how that was a pivotal moment for talking about healthcare professional mental health. Here we go. In 2014, there were two interns who died by suicide in New York City. Um, it wasn't someone at my institution, but I knew colleagues of the people who were involved. And at the time, I was sitting on the ACGME Board of Directors. And at our September 2014 board meeting, we had an extensive conversation about what was going on. And as I was listening, and I happened to be the only psychiatrist in the room at, the, at that time, I'm listening and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, if we can get doctors to look inward at themselves, they'll do a much better job at looking outward at the mental health issues that affect our patients. And that was the stimulus for me. I mean, I'd been involved in graduate medical education my whole career, but depression and suicide per se had not been an overt interest of mine, although clearly the well-being of my trainees had been very important to me throughout my career. But that was the driver. And I, that was really the kickstart because our we set up a task force at the ACGME that I co-chaired with Tim Brigham. And that was really the stepping stone for what subsequently became the Action Collaborative 
at the National Academy of Medicine, the Action Collaborative on Clinician Wellbeing. And all of a sudden, I found myself really, really invested in that, particularly because my passion throughout my life has been making good physicians. And if we have physicians who are burned out, depressed, anxious, miserable, for whatever reasons, they're not going to be able to give good care to our patients, to say nothing of their own lives. Corey, you come to the conversation wearing many hats. Why don't we jump right in? Update the audience on the Lorna Breen Heroes Foundation and most recently, the Healthcare Provider Protection Act. So, Risa, thank you so much for having me today, and thanks for having me back. Uh, this is uh, this past year we have done so many uh, podcasts and speaking engagements, but this is the first one I've been invited back to. So, it's really a pleasure to be here with you today. The last twenty months of the Dr. Lorna Breen Heroes Foundation have been incredibly um, fruitful in terms of making an impact in the areas of awareness, advocacy, and education of the the challenges that the healthcare workforce has right now. In the past 20 months, we have, and and since we talked 12 months, um, we have now reached over 150 million people with the story. We've published in the last year six additional national publications, including an academic publication on physician suicide. We've launched a website called npsaday.org, which is na- stands for National Physician Suicide Awareness Day.org, which is chock full of resources for hospitals and institutions. Uh, we have now been published in over 300 articles um, that all accumulate to the 150 million people that we've reached. More importantly, though, we have heard from countless physicians family members of physicians, nurses, family members of nurses, about the impact of this storytelling and how the behavior change that is followed. In addition to that, we have heard from mental health professionals who have commented about how important it was for us to share the information about Dr. Breen's concerns with regard to her license stigma so that they could pick it up in the language that their physician patients were, were sharing. Uh, We've and, and so in that way, we've heard from many that that this work has been life saving um, and enabled others to take care of each other. Um, advocacy has been something that we have spent a tremendous amount of time in as well. The Dr. Lorna Breen Healthcare Provider Protection Act unanimously passed the Senate. The 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 House of Representatives currently is uh, voting on the legislation. It unanimously passed the House Energy and Commerce Subcommittee on Health. It is about to be voted on by the full Energy and Commerce Committee and then the full committee. I'm sorry, the full House of Representatives. We will have law by the end of the calendar year. And on top of that, because the many of the grant provisions in this new law were already funded in the American Rescue Plan, which was in the spring, a uh, really early, late, late winter, early spring of 2021. HRSA is already allocating the dollars associated with the Lorna Breen Act. So we've made tremendous progress there. Um, I'll, I'll end by saying our advocacy work has also extended to states, hospitals, 
Um, on the September 9th, we published an article in U.S. News and World Report, which identifies st- six barriers to stigma. So I'll pause there by saying that we have spent a lot of time in advocacy and awareness. And at some point in this podcast, I'll also get to tell you about our educational work, too, because it's 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 cascading the country. Carol, you have been shaking your head, agreeing, knowing, thinking. Uh, what is your reflection? Well, first of all, I want to thank both of you, both Risa for inviting me and Corey to this podcast and for all of the work that you've both done in educating the general population about these challenges. Certainly, they've been true forever. Corey, I'm really sorry for the loss that your family experienced. I think it is amazing that you've been able to grab this and use it and turn it into something that from what I've heard about your sister-in-law, she would be so proud of that you've been able to take it and move it into something that's meaningful and productive for everyone and that will help not only other doctors, but all of our patients as well. Um, the stigma, uh, there, the annual meeting of the American Psychiatric Association always has a theme. Usually it's a whole lot of words like you hear in a strategic planning mission. The one, the one sentinel word that I ever heard to describe a meeting, somebody's theme, was um, a psychiatrist named Paul Fink in the 90s. And his theme was overcoming stigma. That is the only, that is the only language that I remember from all of the American Psychiatric Association meetings that I ever went to for a theme to show you how long it's certainly been around. It's been around much longer than that. I mean, the stigmatization against mental illness is endemic for millennia. Um, you know, people were always sequestered and hidden and it was shameful. Um, it even took me um, most of my career to talk openly about my mother's bipolar illness. And I was president of the American Psychiatric Association and still never thought to make a public statement about that because everybody's been impacted in one way or another by some family member who has struggled with a psychiatric illness. And given the macho tradition and culture in medicine, you know, it's it's certainly been hidden and shameful and a real problem for those of us in the medical profession as it has been throughout the country for everyone. Um, And I think if we can see people that we admire and respect and look up to talk openly about the challenges that they have faced, that that will make a difference and will make it possible for all of us to be more tolerant of each other and to help each other out, which is something that I think sadly we've lost in the country in general and that the COVID pandemic has clearly made much worse. Rather than talking about the stigma of the past, let's talk about the stigma that is still present today because I just recorded an episode on uh, gun violence with um, the chair of trauma surgery at the University of Chicago and a former emergency medicine chief medical officer. And everybody was saying, yes, like physicians should get treatment. Yes, physicians should address their mental health. It's very important for trainees. I think we're hearing people say that more, people in leadership position, but I don't know how people feel they can really actualize it because of the stigma that still exists. So Carol, I'm wondering if you can address that and Corey, please weigh in on what you've learned and your thoughts. 
Well, you're completely right, Risa, and I can't even tell you the stories that all of us in psychiatry have heard, which is if you're a good student, they say to you, "What? why are you going into psychiatry? You should be going into X, Y, Z. I mean, the good news is as stigma against about mental illness is reducing, and I, it's very different now than when I finished medical school, more and more that we were seeing a huge uptick in the number of students selecting psychiatry as a career. So that's really the very good news. But I think that people are ashamed. You know, we doctors feel very strongly about having to be the best, do the best, jump through hoops in order to go to medical school. And we are used to succeeding. And when we can't succeed, the shame and embarrassment and you know, just feeling really awful is quite profound. And so I think that that's contributory. And the fact that um, applications for licensure, as you know, for credentialing, and I'll tell you if we have time a little later, I'll talk about a very neat initiative that may come through the AMA House of Delegates. But there are stigmatizing questions on licensure examinations. They, they question questionnaires. They say, have you ever been treated for a psychiatric illness? They don't say, have you ever seen your general practitioner? So it's embedded in our culture that mental illness, seeking help for depression, for anxiety, for suicidal thinking, that all of that is something to be ashamed of and to be hidden and that we should know, just pull up your bootstraps, don't ask for help, it's not okay. And that's through our families, through our culture, through the population in general? I would add three, three points to that. The first is like any, any change initiative starts from the top and the, and the bottom, <laughs> the behavior has to be modeled, right? So, so the more that we can get the, frankly, the senior physicians to start talking about their experiences, because I will tell you since the New York Times uh, first article uh, on Dr. Breen's passing the day after she died, I have heard from more senior physicians about their personal private struggles than uh, than about any other group that we've heard from uh, other than their families. And so the more that we can get those at the top of that hierarchy, which is in that hierarchy in medicine, speaking and then modeling the behavior would be is 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 one critical piece. The second I would say is that the expectation of our of our learners about the environment that they are going to mature into is very different. They have different expectations and this has been evolving. I've been in healthcare over 20 years and and I've heard um about the evolution of, you know, work-life balance and the demands by the future generation. But I do think that particular to mental health, the expectations and the openness which this generation that is coming up speaks about their mental health is a little different, um, is a little different. The third thing I would say, and this is to Carol's point, and this is the article that we published in U.S. News and World Report. We found these six areas where stigma is is really um, uh institutionalized or incorporated into questionnaires. It's incorporated into the, the medical plan design of 
uh, of, of the medical plan that you have as a doctor at a hospital where it requires you to use the same services of your hospital. But when it comes to mental health, that just reinforces stigma. We've heard about it when it comes to your mental health medical records being able to be subpoenaed in a malpractice case that you're a defendant in. So the, the and then there's and then there's the credentialing and the licensure and all of the questions and one of the things that we've done though and and I truly I, I've heard that that this is already making an impact is just to ask hospitals to publish for their own what the current state is in your hospital in in New York you're in New York does licensure require disclosure in New York it does not. And I know that because Dr. Breen was convinced it did. She was convinced beyond any doubt that by obtaining mental health treatment for the first and only time in her life, that she was going to lose her, her, her license. So for us, this is personal. But just by publishing a report card to those who you work with, you know, knowledge is power. And in this case, it can, it really, it can um, allow folks to obtain it, you know, it, it removes a barrier to, to obtaining uh, a, a access to mental health care that otherwise otherwise would, you know, would, would be there absent that knowledge. So, so those are the three points that I would make. I'm totally in agreement on the stigma thing. I'm also, an, I, I'm very, um, I would just say hopeful that where we are now and maybe some of the, some of the silver lining of the pandemic I don't know anybody who doesn't have a mental health challenge right now from the pandemic, regardless of your walk of life. And so maybe just maybe it comes becomes part of the common conversation, more common than it was before. Well, I'm I'm hoping this is a tipping point. I actually thought it before COVID that we were at a tipping point because of all of the changes in medicine. I wanted to make um, at least one other point, which is, and it, it relates obliquely to the stigma thing. And by the way, just so everyone knows, the, the um, Federation of State Medical Boards published a template for what the question should be on licensure exams that are not stigmatizing. And in many states who had stigmatizing questions have changed their licensure requirements. So that's really important. And Corey, you're absolutely right about New York. There isn't a single stigmatizing question on our licensure application. I do want to say that reimbursement for mental health services from um Medicare, from Medicaid, from our, our commercial insurance companies is abysmal. A GI doc can do a colonoscopy that takes them 10 minutes. I don't, I'm making up the numbers. Gets $3,000 to do it. And we get $100 for spending 45 minutes with a patient. So stigma really impacts directly the access to care issues, which is another part of the problem. It's not just the stigma. It's having people available who can provide the mental health services and we don't have enough. And part of the reason that we don't have enough is because the system, the system that we live in believes that it's more appropriate to reimburse for a cardiology procedure than it is for a mental health service. Yeah. You mentioned about something coming through the AMA House of Delegates. Well, I'm very, I was very excited about this because it's in a teeny little way. It may be a way to address some of the stigma issues. So now that we've conquered licensure, which I think we have, now it moves into credentialing. And if you look at your own, our own institutions, there are still stigmatizing questions. 
on the credentialing applications. And I think, I hope it makes its way through the AMA House of Delegates that Kim Templeton at the University of Kansas is pushing forward a resolution that would say to JACO, to CMS, that you will ding hospital systems that have discriminatory questions on their credentialing applications. So it's not even saying, it's taking the regulatory environment and turning it on its head and say, you're going to get dinged. You're not going to get payment. You're going to get a problem if you continue to have stigmatizing questions on your credentialing applications. And I think that's a big way to start to make change where it has to happen, besides the amazing, incredible advocacy work that Corey's been able to do with Congress, which is astonishing to me. And thank you. It's my pleasure, Carol. Truly is. So, Carol, before the show, I typed your name into PubMed, and I looked at that on which you've published. And uh, a few titles caught my attention. One specifically was the differential diagnosis between major depression and burnout uh, among physicians. And can you walk Risa Corey and the audience through these distinctions? Well, thank you very much for that, Risa. Um, I and several of my colleagues, I think that piece I wrote with Laurel Mayer and Maria Okendo, uh, Maria happens to be the chair at Penn. Laurel runs the uh, resident mental health services at Columbia, and she was directly involved after uh, Dr. Bream's untimely, untimely death. Um, so we talked a lot about what that means. And what's important is that the symptomatology can be similar. What you feel when you're depressed sad, apathetic, isolated, no energy, loss of interest, loss of appetite, difficulty sleeping, all of those symptoms you can be experiencing when you're burned out. But at least from, uh, you know, we, we talk about burnout as being a response to the environment. And it's, it's kind of a simple way to make a distinction, but usually burnout will respond to rest time away, time with friends, colleagues, and you'll feel better. And we don't know yet that it responds to uh, antidepressant medication. Um, and, and it is the response to systems that are at issue, not your own personal um, physiology, which may contribute to depression. Depression, on the other hand, can look the same. But if you're feeling depressed, no matter what you do or where you go, you're still going to feel terrible. And what's really important to distinguish between the two is that burnout looks to the system for the solution and depression looks to mental health for the solution. Now, there it is a Venn diagram. There is an interface, but you don't want to be saying to somebody who's depressed, oh, we just have to adjust the regulatory environment in the hospital. Conversely, you don't want to be saying to somebody who's burned out, go see a psychiatrist. So we want to be as careful as we can in understanding what the differences are and that the two can work synergistically. People who are depressed can be experiencing burnout worse. And people who are burned out can, if they're susceptible, if, if they have a, a what we call a diathesis, uh, for depression, they can get depressed given the circumstances. Mm -hmm. You said something about if someone is burnt out, you don't want to send them to a psychiatrist. Can you just clarify that a bit? Well, I, I'm I'm talking in a in a purely linear fashion. I'm very much about 
for burnout, trying to look at systemic solutions and not putting the onus on the individual to feel better, which is, which is why I say that. But of course, um, if you're burned out, seeking mental health treatment may help you find some individual solutions to the situation, since we know that systemic change is very hard to manage. Um, we need efforts like the one Corey has initiated with Congress to really do it on a large scale and what's happening with the National Academy. But so I don't want to say you shouldn't go to see a psychiatrist. I'm just saying we want to be sure, A, not to miss, miss depression when it's really happening and get treatment for people who need it. And if people are burned out, not to forget that the bigger issue here is the system and that we don't want to put the onus on the individual to fix it. Yeah. Thanks for that clarification. Go ahead, Corey. Yeah. I'd like to reinforce what, what Carol just said there, because if I've heard from one doctor, I've heard from probably a thousand that when it comes to burnout, we don't need more meditation apps. That is, that is literally a quote I have heard hundreds of times. And, and let me be clear. I love meditation apps. I meditate all the time. I learned about meditation when I went back to business school and it was very stressful. So it is definitely very effective. But to Carol's point, and this is the big challenge that the entire healthcare industry has here, is that it has found itself in a, in a position where it, the, the way that healthcare delivery is designed burns out right now 55% of the workforce. And that is not a sustainable delivery system. So we have to redesign the coal mine. And what I've heard from those physicians and nurses who have said, if you give me another, another meditation app, I'm going to shove it right back in your face, is redesign my workplace so I can do my job, so I can thrive, so I can feel valued. By shifting, by telling me, that I just need to go get a meditation app or do yoga or even take the day off. What you're telling me is this is my problem to solve and you have abdicated or in some ways just put a Band-Aid on the solution. And that's where I think we've got to do both. We absolutely, because right now the workforce is really, really struggling. And so we've got to give them interventions right now to support them in whatever that that fashion but our longer term play or i should say maybe our in intermediate and longer term play has got to be to redesign this so that we prevent these in the future and 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 just to add completely completely agree with Corey. the the challenge that we have is that the individual solutions are the easier ones to talk about it is much harder to say no i mean i like the idea of chief wellness officers Sorry, one person is not going to fix the system. We need an army of people and they're different. They're different in different specialties, the challenges. They're different in different workplaces. They're different for different disciplines. Nurses have certain challenges. Physicians have others. Um, the transport workers have others. I mean, there are multiple layers to this that all require targeted solutions at, on a systemic level, but people get so overwhelmed by that that they say, "Okay, here's another meditation." And I'm like, "No, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't, I haven't managed to do meditation yet." Um, I, I people say it would probably help. Um, it probably would, but I'm very much about the system, and I'm about linking mental health services and adequate, good, accessible services to the system for the people who need it. 
people that still feel a stigma yet want to reach out and seek services, the services that Corey referred to that sort of went unfilled, you know, the, the free therapy that was uh, available throughout the pandemic. How would you help people and encourage them? Well, first of all, I think it's getting better. I think people are more will as we talk about it and the narratives, the stories, hearing about Dr. Breen, hearing about our own struggles as people, people we respect and look up to. I mean, I remember even when Victor Zhao at one of the National Academy meetings talked about wanting to change specialties and how demoralized he felt in the work he was doing to a room of 4,000 people, this very powerful person admitting that he had struggled. That's huge. So that's a big way that we can do it. But it's still challenging. I mean, people, I feel that some of the future for my field is working alongside our colleagues in emergency medicine and in medicine and in surgery so that we can sort of whisper in your ears because people still feel shame and embarrassed about going to see a psychiatrist. So it's getting better, though, it really is. One of my hypotheses, Carol, and, and this is backed by the data from the American Medical Association's Coping with COVID-19 survey, is that because of the stigma, many physicians would feel more comfortable in a peer support type of a model. So maybe help me understand a little bit about your thoughts on whether a peer support model would be at least an intermediate step along that spectrum. It's not just intermediate, Corey. Actually, thank you for asking the question because I have become increasingly interested and intrigued by the concept of peer support. I think that that's useful, again, in any field. Not, I mean, law, okay? You're a lawyer, right? I think teachers, I think all of us, you know, when we're especially truck drivers, whomever, you know, that we we gain a lot from connecting to our peers. And as I, I don't think that most people in healthcare are going to need to be referred to psychiatrists or mental, other mental health professionals because of their burnout. But I think to the extent that we can connect with each other um, and have peer support, that that's wonderful. And I know that the Health and Hospitals Corporation in New York City really rolled out a huge initiative to try to develop programs that would enable people who are interested in having peer support, whether it was someone in your discipline, someone of your age, someone older, someone in a different site. So yes, and yes, and yes, I think that I don't think it's just intermediate. I think that that is a potential solution, that that will be very helpful both in the short term and the long term. Amazing. Now, I knew Carol had expertise, but I actually didn't understand the breadth and the depth of her expertise until doing some background reading and research for the show and in having her join for this conversation. I'm deeply appreciative that there are healthcare professionals focused on dealing with the health of healthcare professionals. Um, amazing work by both Corey and Jennifer of the Dr. Lorna Breen Heroes Foundation. They have been tireless in what they're doing, and it's amazing to see how they have moved the needle. Coming up, we have some episodes on health design, which is one of my favorite topics on which to speak. And I have a conversation that's been pending with Dr. Aletha Maybank. Stay tuned, and we'll see you next week. 
The Visible Voices podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown, discussing topics of healthcare equity and current trends. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the show. You can listen on whatever platform you subscribe to podcasts. Our team includes Stacey Gitlin and Dr. Giuliano DePorto. If you're interested in sponsoring an episode, please contact me, Risa at thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. I'm based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and I'm on Twitter at Risa E. Lewis. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, to be continued.